10 Reasons Why I Believe the Bible is the Word of God by R.A. Torrey. I was brought up to believe that the Bible was the Word of God. In early life, I accepted it as such upon the authority of my parents and never gave the question any serious thought. But later in my life, my faith in the Bible was utterly shattered through the influence of the writings of a very celebrated scholarly and brilliant skeptic. I found myself face to face with the question, why do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? I had no satisfactory answer. I determined to get to the bottom of this question. If satisfactory proof could not be found that the Bible was God's Word, I would give the whole thing up, cost what it might. If satisfactory proof could be found that the Bible was God's Word, I would take my stand upon it, cost what it might. I doubtless had many friends who could have answered the question satisfactorily, but I was unwilling to confide to them the struggle that was going on in my own heart. So I sought help from God and from books, and after much painful study and thought, came out of the darkness of skepticism into the broad daylight of faith and certainty that the Bible from beginning to end is God's Word. The following pages are largely the outcome of that experience of conflict and final victory. I will give 10 reasons why I believe the Bible is the Word of God. First, on the ground of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Many people accept the authority of Christ who do not accept that of the Bible as a whole. We all must accept his authority. He is accredited to us by five divine testimonies, by the testimony of the divine life he lived, by the testimony of the divine words he spoke, by the testimony of the divine works he wrought, by the divine attestation of the resurrection from the dead, and by the testimony of his divine influence upon the history of mankind. But if we accept the authority of Christ, we must accept the authority of the Bible as a whole. He testifies definitely and specifically to the divine authorship of the whole Bible. We find his testimony as to the Old Testament in Mark 7.13. Here he calls the law of Moses the word of God. That, of course, covers only the first five books of the Old Testament. But in Luke 24, 27, we read, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And in the 44th verse, he said, All things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. The Jews divided the Old Testament into three parts, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And Christ takes up each of these parts and sets the stamp of his authority upon it. In John 10.35, Christ says, The scripture cannot be broken, thereby teaching the absolute accuracy and inviolability of the Old Testament. More specifically still, in Matthew 5.18, Jesus says, One jot, or one tittle, shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. A jot is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, less than half the size of any other letter. And a tittle is the merest point of a consonant, less than the cross we put on a T. And Christ here declares, the scripture is absolutely true, down to the smallest letter or point of a letter. 
So if we accept the authority of Christ, we must accept the divine authority of the entire Old Testament. Now as to the New Testament, we find Christ's endorsement of it in John 14, 26. The Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Here, we see that not only was the teaching of the apostles to be fully inspired, but also their recollection of what Christ himself taught. We are sometimes asked how we know that the apostles correctly reported what Jesus said. Many may they not have forgotten. True, they might forget, but Christ himself tells us that in the Gospels we have not the apostles' recollection of what he said, but the Holy Ghost's recollection, and the Spirit of God never forgets. In John 16, 13, and 14, Christ said that the Holy Ghost should guide the apostles into all the truth. Therefore, in the New Testament teaching, we have the whole sphere of God's truth. The teaching of the apostles is more complete than that of Jesus himself. For he says in John sixteen twelve, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he shall guide you into all the truth. While his own teaching had been partial because of their weakness, the teaching of the apostles under the promised spirit was to take in the whole sphere of God's truth. So, if we accept the authority of Christ, we must accept that of the whole Bible, but we must, as already seen, accept Christ's authority. Second, on the ground of its fulfilled prophecies. There are two classes of prophecies in the Bible. First, the explicit verbal prophecies, Second, those of the types. In the first, we have the definite prophecies concerning the Jews, the heathen nations, and the Messiah. Taking the prophecies regarding the Messiah as an illustration, look at Isaiah 53, Micah 5.2, Daniel 9.25-27. Many others might be mentioned, but these will serve as illustrations. In these prophecies, written hundreds of years before the Messiah came, We have the most explicit statements as to the manner and place of his birth, the manner of his reception by men, how his life would end, his resurrection and his victory succeeding his death. When made, these prophecies were exceedingly improbable and seemingly impossible of fulfillment, but they were fulfilled to the very minutest detail of manner and place and time. How are we to account for it? Man could not have seen these improbable events. They lay hundreds of years ahead, but God could, and it is God who speaks through these men. But the prophecies of the types are more remarkable still. Everything in the Old Testament, history, institutions, ceremonies, is prophetical. The high priest, the ordinary priesthood, the Levites, the prophets, priests, and kings are all prophecies. The tabernacle, the brazen altar, the laver, the golden candlestick, the table of the showbread, the veil, the altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, the very coverings of the tabernacle are all prophecies. 
And all these things, as we study them minutely and soberly in the light of the history of Jesus Christ and the church, we see wrapped up in the ancient institutions ordained of God to meet an immediate purpose, prophecies of the death, atonement, and resurrection of Christ, the day of Pentecost, and the entire history of the church. We see the profoundest Christian doctrines of the New Testament clearly foreshadowed in these institutions of the Old Testament. The only way in which you can appreciate this is to get into the book itself and study all about the sacrifices and feasts, etc., till you see the truths of the New Testament shining out in the Old. If, in studying some of the elementary form of life, I find a rudimentary organ, useless now, but by the process of development to become of use in that animal's descendant, I say, back of this rudimentary organ is God, who in the early animal is preparing for the life and the necessities of the animal that is to come. So going back to these preparations in the Bible for the truth that is to be clearly taught at a later date, there is only one scientific way to account for them, namely, he who knows and prepares for the end from the beginning is the author of that book. Third, on the ground of the unity of the book. This is an old argument, but a very satisfactory one. The Bible consists of 66 books written by more than 30 different men, extending in the period of its composition over more than 1,500 years, written in three different languages in many different countries and by men of every plane of social life, from the herdmen and the fishermen and the chief politician up to the king upon his throne, written under all sorts of circumstances. Yet in all this wonderful conglomeration, we find an absolute unity of thought. A wonderful thing about it is that this unity does not lie on the surface. On the surface, there is oftentimes apparent contradiction, and the unity only comes out after deep and protracted study. More wonderful yet is the organic character of this unity, beginning in the first book and growing till you come to its culmination in the last book of the Bible— we have the first, first the seed, then the plant, then the bud, then the blossom, then the ripened fruit. Suppose a vast building were to be erected, the stones of which were brought from the quarries in Rutland, Vermont, Berea, Ohio, Casota, Minnesota, and Middletown, Connecticut. Each stone was cut into final shape in the quarry from which it was brought. These stones were of all varieties of shape and size, cubical, rectangular, cylindrical, etc. But when they were brought together, every stone fitted in its place. And when putting together, there rose before you a temple, absolutely perfect in every outline, with its dome, sidewalls, buttresses, arches, transepts, not a gap or flaw anywhere. How would you account for it? You would say, back of these individual workers in the quarries was the mastermind of the architect who planned it all and gave to each individual worker his specifications for the work. So in this marvelous temple of God's truth, which we call the Bible, those whose stones have been quarried at periods of time and in places so remote from one another, but where every smallest part fits each other part, we are forced to say 
that the back of the human hands that wrought was the mastermind that thought. Fourth, on the ground of the immeasurable superiority of the teachings of the Bible to those of any other and all other books, it is quite fashionable in some quarters to compare the teachings of the Bible with the teachings of Zoroaster, Buddha, Confucius, Epictetus, and Socrates, and Marcus Aurelius, Antonius, and a number of other heathen authors. The difference between the teachings of the Bible and those of these men is found in three points. First, the Bible has in it nothing but truth, while all the others have truth mixed with error. It is true Socrates taught how a philosopher ought to die. He also taught how a woman of the town ought to conduct her business. Jewels there are in the teachings of men, but as Joseph Cook once said, they're jewels picked out of the mud. Second, the Bible contains all truth. There is not a truth to be found anywhere on moral or spiritual subjects that you cannot find in substance within the covers of that old book. I have often, when speaking upon this subject, asked anyone to bring me a single truth on moral or spiritual subjects, which upon reflection I could not find within the covers of this book, and no one has ever been able to do it. I have taken pains to compare some of the better teachings of non-believers with those of the Bible. They have indeed have jewels of thought, but they are, whether they knew it or not, stolen jewels and stolen from the very book they ridicule. The third point of superiority is this. The Bible contains more truth than all other books together. Get together from literature of ancient and modern times all the beautiful thoughts you can Put away all the rubbish. Put all these truths that you have culled from the literature of all ages into one book. And as the result, even then you will not have a book that will take the place of this one book. This is not a large book. I hold in my hand a copy that I carry in my vest pocket. And yet in this one little book, there is more truth than in all the books which man has produced in all the ages of his history. How will you account for it? There's only one rational way. This is not man's book, but God's book. Fifth, on the ground of the history of the book, it's victory over attack. This book has always been hated. No sooner was it given to the word than it met with the hatred of men, and they tried to stamp it out. Celsus tried by the brilliancy of his genius Porphyry, by the depth of his philosophy, but they failed. Lucian directed against it the shafts of his ridicule. Diocletian, the power of the Roman Empire, but they failed. Edicts, backed by all the power of the empire, were issued that every Bible should be burned and that everyone who had a Bible should be put to death. For 18 centuries, every engine of destruction that human science Philosophy, wit, reasoning, or brutality could bring to bear against a book has been brought to bear against that book to stamp it out of the world. But it has a mightier hold on the world today than ever before. If that were man's book, it would have been annihilated and forgotten hundreds of years ago. But because there is in it the hiding of God's power, Though at times all the great men of the world have been against it and only an obscure remnant for it, still it has fulfilled wonderfully the words of Christ, though not in the sense of the original prophecy. 
heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Sixth, on the ground of the character of those who accept and those who reject the book. Two things speak for the divinity of the Bible, the character of those who accept it and equally the character of those who reject it. I do not mean by this that every man who professes to believe this book is better than every man that does not. But show me a man living an unselfish, devoted life, one who without reservation has surrendered himself to do the will of God, and I will show you a man who believes the Bible to be God's word. On the other hand, show me a man who rejects the divine authority of that book, and I will show you a man living a life of greed or lust or spiritual pride or self-will. Suppose you have a book purporting to be by a certain author, and the people best acquainted with that author say it is his, and the people least acquainted with him say it is not. Which will you believe? Now the people best acquainted with God say the Bible is his book. Those who are least acquainted with God say it is not. Which will you believe? Furthermore, as men grow better, they are more likely to accept the Bible. As they grow worse, they are more likely to reject it. We have all known men who are both sinful and unbelieving, who by forsaking their sin lost their unbelief. Did any of us ever know a man who was sinful and believing, who by forsaking his sin lost his faith? The nearer men live to God, the more confident they are that the Bible is God's word. The farther they get away from him, the more confident they are that it is not. Where is the stronghold of the Bible? In the pure, unselfish, happy home. Where is the stronghold of infidelity? The gambling hell, the drinking salon, and the brothel. If a man should walk into a saloon and lay a Bible down upon the bar and order a drink, we should think there was a strange incongruity in his actions. But if he should lay any infidel writing upon the bar and order a drink, we would not feel that there's any incongruity. Seventh, on the ground of the influence of the book. There is more power in that little book to save men and purify, gladden, and beauty their lives than in all other literature put together. More power to lift men up to God. A stream never rises higher than its source. And a book that has power to lift men up to God that no other book has must have come down from God in a way that no other book was. I have in mind, as I write it, a man who was the most complete victim of strong drink I ever knew, a man of marvelous intellectual gifts, but who has been stupefied and brutalized and demonized by the power of sin, and he was an infidel. At last, the light of God shone into his darkened heart, and by the power of that book, he has been transformed into one of the humblest, sweetest, noblest men I know today. What other book could have done that? What other book has the power to elevate not only individuals, but communities and nations that this book has? Eighth, on the ground of the inexhaustible depth of the book. Nothing has been added to it in 1,800 years, yet a man like Bunsen or Neander cannot exhaust it by the study of a lifetime. George Mueller read it through more than 100 times and said it was fresher every time he read it. Could that be true of any other book? But more wonderful than this, 
not only individual men, but generations of men for 1,800 years have dug into it and given to the world thousands of volumes devoted to its exposition, and they have not reached the bottom of the quarry yet. A book that man produces can exhaust, but all men together have not been able to get to the bottom of this book. How are you going to account for it? Only in this way, that in this book are hidden the infinite and inexhaustible treasures of the wisdom and knowledge of God. A brilliant Unitarian writer, in trying to disprove the inspiration of the Bible, says, How irreligious to charge an infinite God with having written his whole world word in so small a book. He doesn't see how this argument can be turned against him. What a testimony it is to the divinity of this book. Such infinite wisdom is stored away in so small a compass. Ninth, on the ground of the fact that as we grow in knowledge and holiness, we grow toward the Bible. Every thoughtful person, when he starts out to study the Bible, finds many things which he does not agree. But as he goes on studying and growing in likeness to God, The nearer he gets to God, the nearer he gets to the Bible. The nearer and nearer we get to God's standpoint, the less and less becomes the disagreement between us and the Bible. What is the inevitable mathematical conclusion? When we get where God is, we and the Bible will meet. In other words, the Bible was written from God's standpoint. Suppose you're traveling through a forest under the conduct of an experienced and highly recommended guide. You come to a place where the two roads diverge. The guide says the road to the left is the one to take, but your own judgment passing upon the facts before. It sees clear evidence that the road to the right is the one to take. You turn and say to the guide, I know you've had large experience in this forest, and you have come to me highly recommended. But my own judgment tells me clearly that the road to the right is the one we should take, and I must follow my own judgment. I know my reason is not infallible, but it is the best guide I have. But after you have followed the path for some distance, you are obliged to stop, turn around, and go back and take the path which the guide has said was the right one. After a while, you come to another place where two roads diverge. Now the guide says the road to the right is the one to take. But your judgment clearly says the one to the left is the one to take. And again, you follow your own judgment with the same results as before. After you've had this experience 40 or 50 times and found yourself wrong at every turn, I think you would have enough sense the next time to follow the guide. This is just my experience with the Bible. I received it at first on the authority of others. Like almost all other young men, My confidence became shaken, and I came to the fork in the road more than 40 times, and I followed my own reason, and in the outcome, found myself wrong and the Bible right every time. And I trust that from this time on, I shall have sense enough to follow the teachings of the Bible, whatever my own judgment may say. Tenth, on the ground of the direct testimony of the Holy Spirit. We began with God and we shall end with God. We began with the testimony of the second person of the Trinity and shall close with that of the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit sets his seal in the soul of every believer to the divine authority of the Bible. 
It is possible to get to a place where we need no argument to prove that the Bible is God's word. Christ says, my sheep know my voice, and God's children know his voice. And I know that the voice that speaks to me from the pages of that book is the voice of my father. You will sometimes meet a pious old lady who tells you that she knows that the Bible is God's word. And when you ask for a reason for believing that it is God's word, she can give you none. She simply says, I know it is God's word. You say, well, that is mere superstition. Not at all. She is one of Christ's sheep and recognizes her shepherd's voice from every other voice. She is one of God's children and knows the voice which he speaks to her from the Bible is the voice of God. She is above argument. Everyone can have that testimony. John seven seventeen tells you how to get it. If any man willeth to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it be of God. Just surrender your will to the will of God, no matter where it carries you, and you will put yourself in such an attitude toward God that when you read this book, you will recognize that the voice that speaks to you from it is the voice of God whom you have surrendered your will. Some time ago, I was speaking to our students about how to deal with skeptics. There was one in the audience, a graduate of a British university, who had fallen into utter skepticism. At the close of the lecture, he came to me and said, I don't wish to be discourteous, sir, but my experience contradicts everything you have said. I asked him if he had followed the course of action that I had suggested and not found light. He said that he had had. Stepping into another room, I had a pledge written out running somewhat as follows. I believe there is an absolute difference between right and wrong, and I hereby take my stand upon the right to follow it wherever it carries me. I promise earnestly to endeavor to find out what the truth is, and if I ever find that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, I promise to accept him as my Savior and confess him before the world. I handed the paper to the gentleman and asked him if he was willing to sign it. He answered, certainly, and did sign it. And I said to him, You don't know there is not a God, and you don't know that God doesn't answer prayer. I know he does, but my knowledge cannot avail for you. But here is a possible way to hang to knowledge. Now, you have promised to search earnestly for the truth, so you will follow this possible clue. I want you to offer a prayer like this. Oh God, if there be any God and you answer prayer, Show me if Jesus Christ is your son, and if you show me he is, I will accept him as my Savior and confess him before the world. He agreed to do this. I further requested that he take the Gospel of John and read in it every day, reading only a few verses at a time, slowly and thoughtfully. Every time before he read, asking God to give him light. This he agreed to do, but he finished by saying, There's nothing in it. However, at the end of a short time, I met him again, and he said to me, There is something in that. I replied, I knew that. Then he went on to say, It seemed just as if he had been caught up by the Niagara River and had been carried along, and that before long he would be a shouting Methodist. A short time ago, I met this gentleman again, and he said to me that he could not understand how he had been so blind 
how he had ever listened to the reasoning which he had, that it seemed to him utterly foolish now. I replied, the Bible would explain this to him, that the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. But now he had put himself in the right attitude towards God and his truth. Everything had been made plain. That man who assured me that he was a very peculiar peculiar, peculiar man and that methods that influenced others would not influence him, by putting himself into the right attitude towards God, got to a place where he received the direct testimony of the Holy Ghost that this Bible is God's word. Anyone else can do the same.